is that if you don't have a method, if you think that there's lots to learn, there, you can um, salad bar a method and take a little bit from here and a little bit from there, then you don't quite understand what worldview means. And so today we're going to discuss what, why we would take what we call an, a, a, a covenantal apologetic because our worldview is very particular. And today we're going to start in Genesis as to how we view the world for this particular method. Sounds good? I'm excited about it. And I'm going to try and allow for um, questions as we go. So please uh, feel free to engage. And I will try and look up every once in a while so we can get that done. All right, good. Well, let's have a word of prayer. We'll get going. We've got a lot to do. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you um, grateful for these moments where we can really look closely at uh, your word, look closely at what, uh, at what you will have us do when, when we confront people who uh, don't believe you, uh, when we confront ourselves, when we stop believing, Lord. And so we pray that this would be a help to us uh, as a way to defend the truth, even to ourselves. And Lord, we ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. All right. So as you look at your little piece of paper there, we're starting in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 1 is a fine place to start, but Genesis chapter 2 kind of expounds on Genesis chapter 1, giving us a, uh, um, a genealogy of how the world was made. And when we get to verse 7, if you would look at verse 7, it talks about God making man. Then the Lord... God formed man of dust from the ground. Okay? Now that dust that he formed was not a man yet, was not a person yet, was not a being, a living being yet. The second part here says, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now that's an important uh, that's an important verse, especially if you look at 1 Corinthians 15 and go through 1 Corinthians 15. That becomes uh, very important because that is a relationship or uh, the method by which uh, we start understanding the relationship between Christ and the Holy Spirit. So I just say that to say this is not just incidental. Okay, It's not just incidental that... Uh, this is how God formed man and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life so that he became a living being. Now look at verses 15 through 17. We now know how he became a living being. Now what does it mean for him to be a being that engages the world? Um, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. So we see 
right away, man, after being uh, brought into life, he is placed into an environment that has been created and interpreted for him uh, by God himself, and he is given purpose. He is to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. The first conversation, all right, the first uh, interaction where man has his first interaction with another being is this interaction. If your worldview is that this is just merely a conversation, then that changes the way you're going to think about humans. Okay? We, as Reformed believers, believe this is a covenant conversation where God is making covenant with Adam, saying, do this and live, do that and die. Right? This is covenantal language. Refrain from eating the tree and obey and you live. Reject my words and eat of the tree and you die. This is the very foundation of every covenant, right? Do this and live, obey and live, disobey and die. Okay? Now, this is, uh, as I say this, I want to make sure we understand this isn't uh, merely a reform point of view, but even uh, what you would call uh, progressive dispensationalists hold to this as well. This is why, and uh, if I can put it um, into my job, uh, BJU Press holds to this position, that this is a covenant that is being made with Adam. So you can see there's a broader group out there that holds to this as well. Um, this is part of our heritage going back quite far, even to John Owen. So, I say all that to say this is a worldview of how humans work. Okay? So that they, the first uh, interaction is not just an incidental conversation, but man is an addressee of God. That's how he is made. He is made to, uh, to be addressed by God, and this address is covenantal. Okay? So in your little blanks there, humans were made to be addressed by God. God made them so that they could be, um, so that he could address them. And if you look at the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 7, article 1, we understand that God had to condescend so that we could be addressed, right? God could not speak to us the way he speaks within the Trinity. We would not understand. We might even be obliterated. So he had to condescend. He had to, as Calvin puts it, talk baby talk to us. And what, is, what form does that baby talk take so that we can understand? Well, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7, verse 1, 
summarizes this baby talk as he condescended to us by way of, anyone know? It's easy because it's the answer to all my questions. <laughs> this side, you guys know. Covenant, yes, he condescended by way of covenant. What was that? Okay, what's the wrong answer? Mm -hmm. Okay, good. So you're bringing out the Ten Commandments, the law, which is a covenant, right? This was the covenant at Sinai. So you're seeing that each part of this baby talk to us so that we understand and have conditions by which we exist, right? So we know that even the law was not just a smattering of, you know, uh, I, I can tell that in society it works best when people don't kill each other, therefore I'll tell them not to kill each other. In society it works best when people don't lie to each other, therefore I'll tell them not to lie to each other. Is that what God was doing? No. God was saying, I want you to be like me. Here are the characteristics of me that can be understood through this covenant. And so I will talk to you in a covenantal way, which is my law. The law reflects the very, the very uh, character of our God that we are to be like when he says, be holy, for I am holy. It's all image-bearing work. And so humans live, oops, sorry for the uh, disjunction between the subject and verb there. I changed it, I had man there, like, you know, the generic man, but I thought maybe it might be more helpful to say humans, but then it messed up all my verbs and I apologize. Okay, so, uh, humans live before God, okay? Your environment so that you can know the conditions by which you are able to think and move and have your being is that your, your environment is God. You live before God. God is not an addition to your environment. Do you understand what I am saying? So you don't live in this world that has a bunch of principles and laws. Oh, and God's a part of that. You live before God, and that tells you the conditions by which you are able to begin your thought process. You can begin to understand your existence. It is the reality by which, or the conditions by which, you are able to exist. That's very different than the kind of philosophical world that we have grown to know through the post-enlightenment world that Christians have swallowed whole, which is you're welcome to have your God as long as he is an addition to the laws and principles of logic, reason, and all the things that we have decided by philosophical insight. Does that make sense? Instead, we're saying, no, the basis of reality is that we live before God. Now, 
what we find is if that is the case, especially with Adam, did Adam break covenant or did he keep covenant when it came to uh, eating of the tree? He broke covenant. And this is where we find some major problems with other Christians that view this, this interaction of God and Adam as a mere conversation. How does a mere conversation say, hey, don't eat of that tree, turn into something when he, when he disobeyed? Now all of, human, all of humanity is now affected, if it was just a conversation. If it was a covenant, it would make a lot of sense that all of humanity is affected. Because in covenant, you have a representative, and as a representative, you have consequences that affect everyone you represent. You take away this being a covenant, and there's no explanation as to why it affects everyone else. Sadly, some people have said, well, it has affected his body. And so people through the, through the curse of his body is now, are now affected. And so now it's all sin is kind of connected to your body and become what's called Gnostics in believing the human body is evil. Uh, that's a big problem when Jesus takes on a human body, right? So, I know I'm giving you a lot right now, but I want to really defend this moment in time as to how we interpret it as Reformed believers because this is the centerpiece of why we think of apologetics the way we do. If the centerpiece of why you think apologetics ought to be a certain way doesn't go back to, to Adam, we have a problem. Yes, sir, you have a question. I'm looking up. Yes, good, 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 uh, good question. So Gregory said, what about those people that say Adam wasn't a real person, that he really just represents a group of people or maybe represents kind of um, a system of thought and this is really just a poetic idea. Um, that idea is uh, promoted by liberals who don't believe the Bible, if I can put it that way, if I can be really blunt. Um, because if that's true, right, if Adam isn't a real person, then Jesus was mistaken, Paul was mistaken, and Romans 5.12 is a huge problem because the picture of Adam being the person that failed now has a major problem with the analogy that's supposed to be made with Jesus, who is the real person that succeeded. You take away Adam and you've lost everything. You've lost the gospel. Um, and I, I'm really strict on that because I come from a school where a man tried to do that and he got kicked out, and, uh, which is good. Uh, but um, the vote was a little too close for my taste. Anyway. <laughs> uh, it should have been unanimous to get rid of him. Uh, he was a liberal that didn't believe the Bible, and now he's very clear about how much he does not believe it. And if he were ever to come across this uh, this video, I'd be happy to engage with him and witness to him. All right, well, that brings us to humans 
are defined by this relationship to God. This relationship, us living quorum Deo, before God, this relationship has a term. And of course it's a term you've heard me say a thousand times, I look at my boys over there. Uh, it's a covenantal relationship, right? And this covenantal relationship is either a covenant-breaking relationship or a covenant-keeping relationship. You are born already a covenant what? Breaker. Right? Even David in the Psalms says this, right? He's conceived in sin. What makes you a covenant keeper? I know this is easy, but I need to hear it. Yes, the Holy Spirit works faith in you, and you believe, and you are one with whom? Christ. That's right. You are one with Christ. And because you're one with Christ, Christ is the one really keeping covenant. And because you're one with him, you're joined with the one keeping covenant, and therefore you are keeping covenant. All right. So the only two kinds of humans in the universe are covenant keepers and covenant breakers. That's all we get. All right. So that's the condition of humans. Any questions on that so far? Let's turn, if there are no questions, to Romans chapter 1. We want to see what, um, if there are more uh, particular conditions as to how humans think. Okay, because now we're getting into, okay, we know how they are, their being. There's, there's a philosophical name for this called ontology. You don't have to know that. But it's basically we're saying, what makes a human a human? What makes a human a human is that he is in an, in an environment in which God is their environment, their relationship to God, it defines who they are. They're either covenant keepers or covenant breakers. And that's, that's what they are. But how do they think is a good question. All right? So what are the conditions necessary for us to engage in thought? Because this is where we start getting closer to apologetics, right? Because we're engaging people's thought processes. In fact... When you start to, uh, to doubt, right, you're engaging your thought process. So we look at Romans chapter 19 and, or I'm sorry, Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Verses 19 um, says, because, and we'll worry about the because in just a minute, that which is known about God is evident within them. Okay. So condition number one, humans are not ignorant of God. They know that God exists. They know it. Scripture is very clear about it. Everyone knows, covenant keeper, covenant breaker, everyone knows God exists. For God made it evident to them. So how do they know God exists? Yes. And it becomes obvious because who made it obvious to you? God did it. 
Yes. So rejecting the idea that people don't know that there is a God is rejecting this verse. Is everyone following me so far? Okay. For, now, now Paul's going to say, let me explain why, I, why I'm saying this. For, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been kind of seen, suggested, inferred, clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made, so that they are without excuse. Hell is populated with people that knew who God was. Hell is, doesn't have one member in it that can say, I didn't know. Not one member. If we deny that, we have to deny this verse. I know that's a strong statement, but I don't know what else to say about that. Um, so if it's clearly seen, and it's his invisible attributes and divine nature and his eternal power, we're not saying that all men know that there is a God. Right? We're not saying that all men know there's some kind of God out there, some kind of personality, some kind of presence. We just don't know which one. What is this verse saying? That all men know what? The God of the Bible exists. Okay? That's what it's saying. So your blank there is, all humans know the one true God and his attributes. Now this is an important, uh, important uh, little moment here. <laughs> Do we, uh, any questions over that? Does, that? does that seem like I'm making too much of something? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's an excellent question. That's what I want you to ask. Thank you. Okay, so this is the question. What is the problem? If everyone knows the one true God, what is going on when we come into contact with someone and it genuinely appears that they don't know who this God is? What is going on? Because there seems to be a problem, right? Gregory, Kyle. Kyle. 
Okay, so you seem to be saying that there's some kind of suppression going on. Where would you get that idea? That doesn't sound biblical to me. Oh. <laughs> well, let's look at verse 18. Okay, so before we read verse 18, we see the conditions necessary for a human to be a human. They are either in covenant-breaking mode or covenant-keeping mode, right? They're one or the other. And everyone knows God, the God, right? And so this is how they begin, all right? This is where everything starts. This is, these are the conditions necessary to be a human that is able to begin thinking, but once they begin thinking, what do they do with that information? Thinking is a matter of reflection. Um, if you study epistemology, which is a study of how we know, come to know things, what you understand is epistemology or thinking is not about moving forward, it's about looking back on what is already implanted in your mind. Uh, we call these things common notions. Everyone has common notions. And this is the common notion, that everyone knows God. It is there sitting in your mind. Calvin talks about this quite, quite a bit. He uses the word implanted over and over in, uh, in the Institutes. And once it is implanted, right, reflection is needed because you need that reflection, you need to do something with what you know, in order to have a place to begin thought. Okay? I know that's kind of deep thinking. I wish I could, you know, drag you with me through all, you know, epistemology classes. But the idea of thinking isn't really starting from nothing. You need a platform to begin thought. And that platform are implanted thoughts that you already have been given. Okay? What we call common notions. So what happens? Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? Suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They suppress the truth, and we talked about this before, not in ignorance. They do not suppress the truth unknowingly, but they suppress it in their own unrighteousness. Okay. So right now, whether this matches our experience with other people or not, this is the Word of God. The Word of God says, I've implanted the knowledge in, in your mind so that you can even begin thinking, so you don't become insane, so that you have a platform by which you are able to begin thinking. If you are a covenant breaker, every thought is a way of twisting, turning, rejecting those common notions. So unbelievers or covenant breakers, your next one there, suppress the truth. The unbeliever possesses, that's your next blank, the knowledge of God, but his, his every thought is designed to twist, reject, bury it. Yes, sir. I was reading some John Owen this morning. The next chapter, or I was reading for the next time, chapter 13. And he spends 
For those of you online, what Andrew was saying was obviously we don't have comprehensive knowledge of God. The implanted knowledge is not a lot, but it is enough. It is sufficient that it ought to drive you to God, right? So why, don't, why are they not driven to God? Because they suppress it. Even as believers, we never get comprehensive knowledge, but we have more knowledge, right? But the question is, why would you even want knowledge of God? There is something inside you that rejects, 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 and that is your sinful nature. So that question there I have for you, this is, at the, this is the question that all apologetics Apologetical methods must ask. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Well, you actually just answered the question that I asked, and I wanted it to be a big mystery, and everyone was going to be amazed by the answer, but you gave it, so whatever. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so what's, what's okay, let me, let me put the question this way then. What is not the problem? When you have someone who is an unbeliever, not believing, covenant breaker, rejecting uh, the knowledge that God has implanted in his head. What's the problem? That Thinking about what Andrew just said, what, uh, what is not at issue here? My answer is simple. The problem is not God. You've got to work from that. Okay. All right. I, I'm not going to make a whole lot of blame or solving. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a, good way, that's a good way to say it. The problem is not God. That's right. And the problem is also not that they lack knowledge. 
Does everyone understand what I'm saying? Because that knocks out every other method we've talked about so far. In every other method we've talked about so far, the problem was that the knowledge wasn't there. In classical apologetics, they don't even assume that you know there is a God. They have to get you to believe there is a God, then they say, hey, our, our, we have the best brand. And so then we kind of show that our Bible's true through some trinkets in the desert, and then they can believe our Bible and say, hey, by the way, our Bible says this is the real God. And they go, oh, that's great, let me get saved. So that's a problem, right? That's a problem because Scripture's saying that's, they're not saying there is, they don't know that there's a God. They know. So knowledge is not the problem. Ignorance is not the problem. Okay, that we see. Interesting. And All right. Conviction, the belief that happens, that he does, mm -hmm. that he does, he imparts to us, that belief. All right. Of the things that we can't see. Yeah, so Nathan, Nathan got it. Okay, so Nathan was saying that the thing that they are missing, along with what Andrew was saying, they don't believe. That's the problem. And what's missing f that, why don't they believe? What do they need? <laughs> well, that's what they want. <laughs> yeah. But what they need in order to believe is the Holy Spirit's work. Faith. In order to believe, you need faith. You don't believe through better knowledge, through a better way of thinking. It's not that their, their thinking is kind of twisted, and if you straighten it out and get them to understand the syllogisms right, then they'll catch on. They know the syllogisms, in many cases, way better than you. This is something even Calvin brings out. That the world has knowledge even better than ours when it comes to how to think, how to understand the world, how to uh, understand mathematics, understand logic, they get it even better than us, and they use it all to deny, deny, deny. The problem is not that they're bad thinkers, and if we get them to be better thinkers, then they'll believe. The belief comes by faith, and faith comes through whom? The Holy Spirit. This is very important because this is one of the only methods that, um, and you know, if you can find other methods that do this, that's great, use those as well. But this is the only method I'm aware of that acknowledges the fact that the problem is not poor thinking skills. That the, not, that the problem is not that you just don't know enough and if I just told you all the cool little things about my religion, you'd, you'd really think it's cool. Or that because it has some commonality with, your, with, with historical artifacts, or it has some commonality with logical thinking, that then you will accept it. That is not what brings about strength of faith and believing.
I say this because in some cases, many of us have begun to doubt. And it would be a lie for me to tell you that there's these really good books that have shown some really good evidence that your Bible is true. And if you just get Josh McDowell or his, his little boy, Sean, and you get them together and they will show you all these wonderful little artifacts that show you can really trust your Bible because these artifacts are so awesome. It would be a lie because faith is what we lack, which affects our believing. And faith is not strengthened because we have found a better logical argument or we have found some, um, some commonality with science or something like that. Our faith comes through the Holy Spirit. The strengthening of it comes through the work of the Holy Spirit. And heaven forbid that we start relying on anything other than the Holy Spirit for those moments of doubt. And heaven forbid we rely on anything other than the Holy Spirit when we witness to the unbeliever. Your job in your witnessing work is to tell the truth. And the truth is they can't depend on a super cool argument that seems to coalesce with a logical syllogism or a scientific discovery and the guy that came up with uh, organizing the, the DNA strand happened to be a Christian, even though he believed in evolution, will still claim him, blah, blah, blah. Or I, Sir Isaac Newton uh, was said to be a Christian, even though he didn't believe in the Trinity, but will claim him because he's super science-y. Uh, whatever it is, if that's what you're depending on, heaven help you. That's not where your belief will be strengthened. So I, okay, I still got five minutes. I'm doing great. I'm doing great. We may not get it all the way through, but we're doing all right. Okay, so what is our method then? If this is the state of the human and the state of the believer, the state of the human is they are either covenant breakers or covenant keepers because their entire existence relies on how they stand before God. God is not an addition to our world. He is our world. I'm not trying to sound pan pantheistic. I'm just saying reality is defined by the God that created it. We don't add God to reality. And because of that, your covenant keeping or covenant breaking defines what you are. And if that's the case, then how does someone maintain their covenant keeping is through the Holy Spirit. How does someone maintain their covenant breaking? Right? How does someone do that? Through their suppression of the truth. This is the state that we exist in. And if that's the case, how do we address an unbeliever? How do we address ourselves when we start to uh, doubt? Um, in order to get to my point quickest, 
Um, I will explain this more next week, but Proverbs 26, 4 and 5 gives us our plan. Let me read it. I'll explain it to you quickly within the next five minutes, which won't be enough, and I understand that, and we'll talk about it again next week, but I'll give you the basic layout. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. Answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he not be wise in his own eyes. Now, this is the one time I'm not really sure I like the NASB version. Uh, the other versions sound a little more confusing because what it says is, do not answer a fool according to his folly or he'll be wise in his own eyes. Answer a fool according to his folly. And I think the NASB translators didn't like that because it's a little confusing to people, but I think it's helpful because this is what we're actually doing in our method of apologetics. When you recognize that someone is suppressing, the key to the apologetic is to get them from thinking they have an answer to understanding that they are in the midst of suppression. Because you're trying to lead them to reality. The reality is you don't have the answer. The reality is that you are suppressing the truth. And the next step is then to show what the truth is. It's a two-step process. You show them, number one, answering a fool according to his own assumptions. If you take on his own assumptions and you say, okay, uh, I believe what you believe, uh, that uh, God needs to be more logical. So let me give you a logical explanation for God. Now you've just become as foolish as he is, right? What it's saying to do is say, these are your assumptions. Let me show you where they lead so that you can show them that they are in the midst of suppression, not in the midst of finding the answer. And then you show them what the truth is. The truth is there is a God, and you know it. We'll talk about this a little more uh, next week as to how that um, plays out in a more practical way. But the first step, and this is something, you know, you might run across a few unbelievers where you get this chance, but I really want to emphasize what this means to you. When you start finding yourself doubting, when you find yourself as an unbeliever, <laughs> and you start thinking, how could all this be true? The best thing you can do is study scripture to understand that you, have, you are not stumbling across the truth. You are suppressing it. Your doubt is not part of your truth-finding. It's part of your truth-suppressing. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can come to that conclusion. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can then strengthen yourself with Scripture's words of how the world really is. Doubt is a powerful thing because we keep thinking that doubt is us stumbling across the truth when doubt is really us suppressing it because of our sin. Unbelief is sin. It is not a victim who is discovering truth. It is a sinful mind 
that still has the old man left in him, that's still trying to trick you one more time. And perseverance of the saints doesn't mean that once you're saved, then there's just nothing after that. You just kind of live your life, and when you die, you got your free ticket. Perseverance is real. You have to persevere. It is hard work. It is difficult work. It is preaching to yourself. It is convincing yourself and making you understand what you are to believe. Through whom? The power of whom? The Holy Spirit. That the Bible is not weak. It is powerful. That you're not strong. You're weak. Your doubt is not the truth. It's the suppression of it. This is what the method should be. The method is, is there not just for the unbeliever. It's a tool for us when we doubt to remind us what's really going on. I hope that's helpful for you. I am around afterwards for questions um, that have come to your mind. Next week, we'll go into how this works out in a very practical manner. Uh, what this looks like in a very systematic way so you understand how this, uh, this isn't all ethereal. And uh, we'll have more time for questions there as well. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful to you for your goodness to us. That even uh, before we even, uh, while we still hated you, you loved us. And you chose us in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Lord, we pray that we would be reminded of this, that we would have confidence in it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, let us approach uh, your worship today with a clean heart and a mind ready to receive your word from your servant. Lord, we pray for Andrew as he preaches to us that you would give him boldness of speech as we have a humble heart as we listen, Lord. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen.